Good morning, listeners, and welcome to this week's Ag Report. I'm Jim Finn. My guests this week are Bernard O'Connor from Eco Green Resources, Michael Summers from Chagas, and my final guest this morning will be Katharina Morrissey from the Irish Farmers Journal. My first guest this morning is Matthew Ryan from Chagas, and we're going to be talking about preparing for spring calving in the beef herd. Good morning, Matthew, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me. What should we be doing? Calving season is nearly ready to kick off on most farms, which are always busy at this time of the year. Before we discuss preparing at a farm for calving, which farmers are normally very good at, sometimes farmers may forget to prepare themselves for the season. What advice would you give to farmers to prepare themselves, Matthew? Um So I suppose, Jim, anyone listening who has ever done a calving season before, be it uh, beef or dairy or done a lambing season, knows that it's uh, fairly taxing on the body at times. You know, you're you're never really idle, uh, and a good sleep will be a luxury when you're in the in the thick of it. So, you have to make sure that you're fighting fit, be it physically and mentally, and you need to be fully charged before the the job kicks off. So, if you're not looking after yourself now, um, then when the season kicks off, uh, it could make the job a lot harder than it needs to be. So, with that in mind, the best place to start in terms of preparation, uh, without a doubt, is with yourself as a farmer. So. It involves investing time in preparing yourself uh, because we're generally very good at preparing sheds, machines, cows, sorting out that dreaded paperwork before things get busy. But we're, in some cases, we're not very good at preparing ourselves. So what some farmers do is something as simple as get themselves checked out with a doctor before the season kicks off. They might do a, a simple set of blood work on themselves to see if they're low on anything that might be making them feel a bit tired or a little bit off form. A few different tweaks here and there, follow uh, a bit of medical advice and maybe take a few a few supplements or minerals if needed. You know, it's kind of funny. Farmers are generally very good at giving the appropriate supplements to cows to build them up, but sometimes they're not great at giving the appropriate supplements to themselves. So if you focus on this, you may find a new year in terms of energy before things get busy. If you have a few niggles, I suppose, in terms of pain, be it back, shoulder, knee, uh, pain thing I suppose get to the physio to sort it out before the season kicks off um, you know working with aches and pains never makes the pain or the aches go away a lot of the time it just makes it worse and you don't want to be dealing with aches and pains in the middle of the calving season so so deal with it now um, I suppose if you're mentally not feeling uh, like you should if you're feeling a bit down a bit cloudy a little bit under pressure or worried or concerned over something uh, that's quite a normal thing to happen and I suppose what a lot of people do in those cases is they'll have a, a chat with a good friend or a professional uh, about the topic or the issue. Uh, you'd be very much surprised how much good chat uh, with someone who will listen uh, makes a perceived problem uh, a lot smaller and then the solution uh, becomes clearer when you talk it out loud with someone. You know, Jim, when you, when you speak to farmers openly uh, and they talk about their concerns, their worries or their doubts, they absolutely uh, swear by it. So in terms of preparation, uh, it's a very useful thing to do if needed before the calving season starts because it focuses your mind uh, before the season uh, and kicks off. Okay. Then in terms of getting the farm itself ready for the calving season, what advice would you be giving farmers here? 
Uh, I suppose, Jim, a lot of the, the hard, heavy work should be done by now to make things easy, such as you know, choosing the right bull, having the cows in the right condition for ease of calving and help to reduce those metabolic issues post-calving that take a lot of time, having the correct facilities in place for calving and dealing with calves, changing or setting up temporary pens or putting in cameras. A lot of that work should be done by now. I suppose the next, next best thing uh, to do before any busy season starts is a simple checklist. Keep it very basic uh, and keep it simple. Write out a list of things that need to be done on farm and, and things and things that need to be on farm in stock so you can pull from them straight away when you need them rather than hopping into the car in a hurry uh, or something. Also on that list, write out the small little jobs that need to be done. And if it's okay, Jim, I might just go through um, a very small example of a checklist. Yeah, um, that's fine. Fire away, Matt. Sure, so, yeah. So you, if, if you've got scanning results for those cows, and if they're uploaded online, what some people do is they use the ICBF expected calving profile for the expected calving date. Very useful thing to have on the wall. Take note of cows that are carrying twins, and when you compile that little bit of data together, it gives you a fair idea of where the peak load or peak workload is going to be. Some farmers will vaccinate uh, against scour. Uh, strongly advise doing that. It's a great thing to do. Some guys will get the IBR out of the way, and some guys are even talking about doing lepto before the heavy work um, starts. You know, worth having a chat to the vet about that one. Uh, cabin pins should be cleaned. They should be disinfected, and it's broken. It should be fixed, be welded. If a new gate needs to go in, they should be gone in, and the water shocks should be checked to see that they're not leaking, that they're actually working properly. And I suppose we're all a little bit guilty that we might store something inside in those sheds during the off period. So just make sure that they're cleaned out now and ready to go and every pen is ready rather than trying to do it when you're busy. Um, the dry cow minerals, uh, six weeks uh, pre-calving. Cannot stress how important that is for reducing workload. Some people go 120, some go 140 grams. Every bag is different, so read the bag. But this is very important to reduce work associated with weak calves or retained placentas or cows that are gone down potentially due to milk fever. So try and reduce those problems or prevent them problems from ha- happening right now and save an awful lot of hassle. Um, are your cows clean? I suppose what I'm referring to here, Jim, would be tails and flanks. So some guys would clip the, the tails to keep the teeth clean. Some guys, I suppose, the other side of the house would be the dairy side of the house might go as far as cleaning the flanks just to keep the teeth clean for reducing mastitis and whatnot. Have you got frozen cluster or beasts on hand in the freezer for, you know, if a heifer calves down and she's not letting down the milk that you have at hand ready to go when you need it and you're not going driving around looking for it? Are your calving cameras clean and serviced? Is the mic working on them? Is, is it on your phone so you can look at it remotely? Is it on the TV or is there an issue with the, the, the image flickering that needs to be fixed with the receiver? Are your calving sensors working? Do they need new batteries? Have you enough tags? I suppose if you delve into the equipment, Jim, have you got the calving gloves there on hand? Some people, you know, when you go around to farms, you see they might have baby powder or talcum powder in the box with the gloves. If their arms are wet, they're trying to put on the glove. It just helps to slip it on a bit quicker if they're in a hurry. Cavil lubricants don't use uh, soap. Just get enough cavil lubricants. It makes a huge difference. The cabin jack, the ropes should be on the jack, clean, ready to go. The jack should be free, uh, working, and it shouldn't be slipping and, and ready for an emergency. Uh, a spare set of cabin books is a must. Um, inside those boxes, then, you should have iodine or chlorhexidine, whichever you use for spraying the navel. Some farmers inside those boxes then will have fishing wires enabled as bleeding or hemorrhaging. 
Uh, other farmers might, as a temporary solution, have a, a very small, tiny cable tie just to, to stop the bleeding for, until they, they tie it up with a wire. Stomach tubes, if they're worn, if they're rough, throw them out and get a new one because you don't want to tear the throats and uh, cause an issue. The feeding bottles, if you're using them, should have new nipples on them and they should be sterilised. Have enough electrolyte on the farm for a weak calf or a scour calf and have a thermometer then for checking the calves and also one for checking the milk. Make sure that your lamp is working uh, for the, the warming boxes and you, if you need a calf jacket, make sure they're clean from the previous season. Some guys that have calcium and magnesium then if they need to use inject the cow if she's gone down, just make sure you have the flutter valve there for um, for using that there as well and a cow lifter just to try and uh, lift her up if you need it. And last but not least, uh, Jim, on this small checklist, just make sure your water heater is actually working because uh, hot water during a calving season is essential. Okay, that's all very, very good advice. Now, you have three events coming up in the Tipperary region in the next week or so, so of interest to listeners. What are these events, Matthew? Yeah, correct, Jim. Uh, the first event is kindly on the farm of Michael Quinn in Balawir, uh, Nina, uh, County Tipperary, air code E45K102 at 11am on Monday, the 15th of January. So it's a calf care event and they'll be going through the usual material in terms of the best practice associated with calf rearing. No harm to go for a refresher on the topic or potentially learn something new uh, depending on, on the boards. The second event is Farming for Water Quality. It's an event in Holy Cross in, in Cabra Wetlands on the 16th of January. Um, so basically they're going to go through the current water status in the shore catchment area, improving water quality, slurry management, slurry storage requirements. The county council will be there to talk about farm inspections. You don't need to book, just turn up. Uh, it's indoors and your seat is always grand and warm in this weather. And that's on the 16th of January at 10.45. And the third event, the last but uh, just as important, is the tillage event in Clonmel. So the tillage, uh, the spring tillage seminar is on Wednesday the 17th at half seven. So it's an evening event in the Chagas office in Clonmel. And it's an indoor event. And all the uh, dates and times and addresses for these events are on the Chagas Facebook page, Twitter account. And if you're stuck, just ring the offices there and, and the receptionist will kindly tell you the dates and times. Okay, well, that's all very comprehensive. Thank you ever so much, uh, Matthew, for this morning. Uh, That listeners was Matthew Ryan from Chagas, giving us all the Chagas news and giving us some really good advice with regard to the calving season, which is just about to begin. Listeners, my next guest this morning is somebody that I spoke to at the ploughing two years ago when I had a chat with Bernard O'Connor from Eco Green Resources in Tipperary Town. And at that particular time, Bernard was gone into the supplying of solar to farms. And of course, everybody now knows that solar has become extremely popular. And Bernard wants to talk about some of the myths that are out there with regard to solar and solar power and solar on your farm. Good morning, Bernard, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me. Okay, I said there you want to uh, dispel some of the myths that are out there. So what are the myths that are out there at the moment with regard to solar? Well, I suppose the the, the big thing at the moment is the actual... The grants, of course, is the main thing now for farming, and especially dairy farming. With 60% grants, it's, 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 it's actually now making solar very, very accessible and, you know... And obviously the size of the system is depending on the usage that the farm has annually. 
and their, and their actual capability in terms of their electrical supply coming into the farm. I mean, that is the, the, how it's determined. From then, basically, the grants, to be fair, the way they're structured, they're very, very attractive. And, you know, for example, the current model is that you are allowed to claim 60% on, on a value of 1,440 euros per kilowatt of a system. So if you take a typical farm, would probably be anything between 15 and, we'll say, 35 kVA on a single-phase supply and then up to maybe 40, 45 kVA on a, on a three-phase supply. So that equates to quite a substantial sum of money. But the thing there is that, unfortunately, there is a lot of companies out there in, in our industry, in the solar industry, who are actually jumping on the bandwagon with this and charging prices that equate to the actual money that's being allocated, i.e. they're charging the 1,440-odd euros per kilowatt and and more in some cases, where, in fact, there is a lot of better value to be bought. In fact, actually, farmers should be able to buy their systems for substantially less than paying 1,440 euros per kilowatt. In fact, I would go so far as to say you're looking at 1,000 per kilowatt and less. And, and that's, you know... When you're looking at, would say, typically, if you take a farm with 45 kilowatts, that's a lot of 440 euros. You know, yeah. that's the way, that, and that's something that a lot of farmers are not aware of. And unfortunately, there is, I won't say, I will say, organisations out there who are being, are promoting, obviously, the whole idea of solar, but you know, are charging this kind of money, and because of the 60% grant. The farmers thinking, well, I'm getting really great value here because I've still 60% grants on this. And then with the cost of electricity and the payback period, you know, it's a win-win-win. And yes, it is a win-win-win, but it could be a better win if the farmer was aware that there's better value to be got. So basically what you're saying to me and saying to our listeners this morning, Bernard, is that farmers... If they intend to go into solar on their buildings, etc., that they should shop around for the best price that they can get. And, of course, here in Tipperary, we have this shop local is very, very big as well. So they should shop around nationally, but they should, not, they should shop locally as well. Absolutely. But, and, and also, by the way, a lot of farmers may feel that they, because they've made a decision back we say in, in, in the first round which was in June last year yeah. that they decided to go with a company mm-hmm. that you know that they're tied into that company that is not the actual case by the way because the grant is approved to the farmer not to the installer and the farmer can change his mind and decide that he wants to go and look at an alternative supplier for his solar system and not go and not go with the company that he originally decided he was going to go with and that's something that they, they, they should be aware of. Now, I don't know if they would have paid deposits, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. in some cases, they may have done. I know ourselves as a company, we don't take deposits from farmers at the initial grant application stage because the waiting time is so long. Like, for example, the June round of grants, the money itself, our approval itself, they're telling me now may not come to maybe something like March, April this year. So that's nearly a year later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's the reason why we didn't take any any deposits from people from the very first day um, because of exactly that. And just once the grants are approved, then, of course, we go on to the, the go to the stage of of um, discussing 
the financing. And that's another thing. There is a lot of financing options there available to farmers. There's bridging loans available. There's the Midflex fund available. And there's fund equip available. Um, and, of course, there's green loans available. So there's a lot of facilities available to farmers also to, because of these difficult times, you know, that farmers are maybe stepping back and thinking, well, look, I can't really afford this outlay while I'm waiting for the grant to be paid. But, you know, there is financing available now which will enable them to do that, you know, and still be able to take advantage of getting their solar system installed. Okay. You mentioned earlier their payback time. What is the average payback time for somebody who buys solar and decides to uh, put in a solar system onto their sheds or even at ground level? The payback will vary on different farms purely because, depending on the way the farm works. For example, if, uh, if, if a farmer is, is we'll say, milking, typically we'll, we'll talk about dairy farms, if he's milking early in the morning mm-hmm. and, milk, and in the evening, but there's nothing happening throughout the course of the day, and then, of course, his payback is not going to be as quick as the guy who is milking in the morning, but can also use the electricity that he's generating for, for heating water, for cooling water, and different are cooling the milk, etc. You know that's the the, the the difference. Yeah. Like you, a lot of farms are using gas, and and there is a lot of farms using electricity. So the ones that are using more electricity are going to see the return on investment substantially quicker. But equally, there is the the actual the feed-in facility to the grid. Now there is a kind of a, it's a grey area because theoretically. TAMs say that if you get the grant to 60%, you're not allowed to export to the grid. Mm-hmm. That is true, but equally, utility providers can do their own thing. And equally, once a farmer has installed his or her system, they too can do their own thing. Right now, there is a feed-in tariff available to anybody with a domestic meter. Now, as we all know, most farmers have, have domestic meters. So there's nothing stopping a farmer, in my opinion, that has domestic meter exporting to the grid. Equally, if a farmer has a three-phase supply, there's nothing stopping that farmer making an application to ESP networks and or who has a commercial supply, I should say. Mm-hmm. There's nothing stopping that farmer who has making an application to ESP networks to supply to them be allowed to, ex- to be allowed to export their um, mm-hmm. surplus to the grid. Now, again, we have to understand this... This whole grant scheme was never designed for for farmers to make money out of exporting electricity, and that was the whole key behind this. And to be fair, it is a very good scheme, and I think in time in the future, when the networks change and improve, etc., then there will be opportunities will present themselves at that stage where farmers will have the opportunity to, to fill their roofs with solar. But that's a long way away, to be fair. But I do think the, grant, the grants that are there now are very generous, and you know, and I think they're able to access the surplus that they're, they're, they're generating during the day and feed that into the grid and get paid for it, I think it's it most certainly even then, will then, of course, be able to pay back to be even quicker again, of course. Of course, that's the payback time now. You're, as I said earlier in the interview, that you're based in Tipperary Town. Typically, if somebody contacts you, what do you do? You go out to talk to them, is that what normally happens? Yeah, we go out and we can do a survey for them. To be fair, technology is great nowadays, Jim. We can, you know, we can, like, if I have the information from mm-hmm. a farmer, for example, he's, uh, he's annual billing, yeah, electricity bills, or he's not the, the, the cost, 
his actual kilowatt hours of consumption or units. Right. That's the first thing. If I have the KVA, which is the MIC, that's coming into the farm. That's the, the size of your supply mm-hmm. coming in. Those are the two key. And Google Earth. I mean, Google Earth is a great thing. Uh, we can then, on that alone, we can do just an outline proposal. It just The whole idea is to set the farm right there you go. Rather than wasting a person's time, it makes life easier for everybody. We can then say, right, there you go. That's what the system size you can install. And that is just an, an outline cost. It's only outline. We right. can't give a definitive cost without doing a, com- a comprehensive survey. Give them an idea. This is the kind of ballpark we're talking about yeah, here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's all anybody wants when they're thinking about a ballpark. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it, Farmers are busy this time of the year, so they don't want to be. They don't want to be have guys coming out to the farm, uh, taking up a lot of their time. It's right. easier just to basically send in the information, put together an outline proposal, send it out. If the price is in the ballpark that they're thinking they'd like it to be then absolutely then you know we drive on and we do we go and do a full survey because we have to it's it's a mandatory requirement yeah okay we'll have to look at all the electric the electrical supplies in the building the buildings themselves the actual obviously the the roof lights on sheds mm-hmm. the uh, posts around yeah. the whole farm yeah i understand the agitation and stuff okay following on then from this interview this morning and somebody is doing it how did they make contact with you well, they can contact me directly on my mobile number, which is 086-606-1227. They can ring the office on 062-85000. Or they can email me on bernard at egr, that's echogolfromeo.ie. Okay, well, look, at thanks very much for joining me this morning. It's good to talk to you again, Bernard. And thank you for giving that information to the farmers in Tipperary. Thank you very much, Bernard. That listeners was Bernard O'Connor from Eco Green Resources there in Tipperary Town. Listeners, my next guest this morning is Michael Summers from Chagas. And as you know, Michael is the forestry advisor for our area here in Tipperary. Uh, Good morning, Michael, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning, Jim, and a Happy New Year to everybody. And uh, Happy New Year to you and all your colleagues as well in Chagas, Michael. Now, Michael, you have an event coming up on, what, the 22nd and 23rd or 24th of the month? That's correct. Um, We are running the series of one-to-one clinics where, by and large, people will come in to us um, usually for between a half an hour and an hour long plot and deal with their forestry issues on a one-to-one private basis. So uh, we're starting off on the 22nd in Nina, the 23rd in Turlet and the 24th in Clonmel. So I'm giving the whole county a fairly good um, widespread uh, run through and uh, hopefully that should go according to plan. We have uh, a lot of uh, new schemes there in forestry Obviously, the NTA has been the one that's been getting most of the coverage. But like even there in the last couple of days and last couple of weeks, there has been new packages announced on the management. And, you know, even indeed, like there's other decisions we made within in forestry, we'll say maybe from the tax point of view or inheritance point of view. So, again, p- p- people will have their own issues and their own their own um, circumstances. And uh, this is just an opportunity for them to see it in a private basis rather than having a big public meeting. Right. And will there be more than your good self at all these meetings? Will you have colleagues 
uh, supporting you, Michael? Oh, well, no, the, well, these are one-to-one. Like, it's a, it's yeah. a nationwide campaign, Jim, so like, it's, it, it's, it's running throughout the country. So um, I, I, I'm just kicking off the ball in Tipperary and uh, we'll see where we are then. Michael, how is forestry performing at the moment? Look, Jim, so we are where we are. We're at the start of a new um, programme. Yeah. So obviously there's going to be a lot of teething issues. Uh, NTAs, and particularly in the screening, uh, people will need to see that, OK, yes, the money is quite good. It's over 10 years. It's in and around 2,600 euros per hectare. For, um, for Now, I know there's two different schemes and two different levels of payment, but um, the, the, the NTA has been very popular. There's no point in saying mm-hmm. otherwise. Most of the calls have been in relation to it, but the screening is quite tight. So sites have to be screened to see whether they're in or out of blue areas. And um, uh, again, like this is what we have to look at. Um, from the point of view of the forest type scheme, which is the traditional 20-year scheme, these schemes, there's, there's 12 of them. There's 12 individual planting schemes in the new programme compared to eight in the previous one. So... There seems to be an awful lot more flexibility in the actual type, but then again, the screening and the environmental issues are tighter on the new scheme, even though the, the, the premiums and grants are that a little bit higher. But we, again, it's on a one-to-one basis to see what sites are in and what sites are out. Right. And what then about the these smaller schemes that are out there? I don't know whether you're uh, fully aware... Well, that, that, well, yeah. that's the NTA. Is it, right? And okay. Yeah, that's the NTA. So the NTA is to a maximum of one hectare, but if there's a site near a water course, it can be up to two hectares. So there's two different um, there's two different elements in the in the nature tree area scheme. And uh, again, like it, it's, it's just to see if people can qualify for it or not, because there is a lot of very strict environmental screening that goes on for that particular scheme. Yeah, well, I was really talking about... Uh, um, the ones that come in under the acres scheme. Well, anybody that does acres is, is um, you're exempt for you, you, the, the planting option is not open for three years under the, in, in the in the afforestation and the acres. Right. So um, again, if if a farmer is making up their mind whether to plant now or hold off for three years or go into acres, this is the kind of stuff we'll be talking about on the day. Because again, it, 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 every individual farmer is slightly different than what they want and, and what they're looking for. Right, okay. Getting back then to the old forests and things like licenses to plant or licenses to tin or licenses for clearfell. We were talking about those last, maybe this time last year, and uh, there was difficulty. Is that? Yes, well, there, there seems to be a push upon licensing. It's not to the degree that it was. Uh, this time mm-hmm. last year, and obviously the Forest Service have dealt with those issues. Um, we'll say from the point of view of management, like even road and grant CCF qualifications, there are the whole issue upon Rosh back this season. We're just waiting for a little bit of word on that. So, like, there's a lot of issues there in forestry, and again, like, this is our whole point of the 22nd Ordnance Fort is to uh, flesh those out. And I suppose the other side of it, of course, farmers aren't going to plant forestry unless it's going to be moneymaker and economical for them to do it. And, uh, you know, current prices for timber, what's that like, Michael? Well, again, like, uh, log fell uh, towards the fourth quarter of last year. Now, from the, what we hear is the trade is expecting it to build up in the second quarter of this year. 
Uh, pallet prices have been quite stagnant and quite good. So again, like those, um, the, the, for anybody looking at first, second and third innings, obviously when there's a lot of um, pallet coming over, those prices are, are, are pretty are pretty decent at the moment. Whereby you would say from the point of view of structural timber, that's there's not where it would have been maybe towards the end of 21. Um, but we will be expecting that we'll be picking up uh, towards the second quarter. Because you would see, uh, you know, quite a lot of timber moving at the moment. Well, that's always a good sign that there's some form of management done. But, yeah. like, if you're looking at, we'll say, a pension fund or quilted, they have a lot of land. Like, the average farm size is um, is uh, eight hectares. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, <laughs> it's the sort of a crop dream whereby you can leave it until the price is right. That's like a crop of barley or a crop of oats. It doesn't have to be cut every year. But my attitude, and always has been my attitude, is the farmer cuts when the price is high. And timber goes up very fast and goes down very fast. It's just the nature of the business. And is that being driven by the amount of building that's going on at the moment? Or is there something else driving the price either up or down, Michael? Well, back a couple of years ago, it was the retrofit in the UK was driving the price. You have to bear in mind 95% of the timber that's produced in this country is exported to the UK. So, obviously, when there's a, a, a go upon their retrofit right. from what was built, we'll say, maybe in the far, um, after the end of the Second World War, right up until the 70s, a lot of that, those buildings and those houses are getting the retrofits now. And um, so that's what's driving the price with their... Um, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and then, uh, look, we, we, we have a situation in, even in, in Ireland where the government policy is to build 50,000 houses per year. So, like, uh, again, there's always going to be a market for timber. And um, people must realise that, but it's just the nature of the game. When it goes up, it goes up very fast. When it goes down, it goes down equally as fast. The, probably the best piece of advice any farmer could have with stuff that's 25 years of age is just have the fella license on it and just wait, because it is a waiting game. And uh, again, get it measured, know what's in it, and then you can take your prices. It's very difficult to just go in and, and obviously if you're, if you're a timber buyer, you're buying timber every day of the week. A farmer is doing it once in a lifetime. So um, get it measured, know what's in it, and quantify. But again, this is what we'll be covering on the 24th, 5th, yeah, or 22nd, yeah, 3rd and 4th of the month. Yeah, well, we'll whet the appetite of people who want to go to those meetings on the 22nd, the 23rd and the 24th. Look at, will you ever uh, remind the listeners once again about those three events uh, that are happening across the county and more importantly, at what time that they kick off at and at each venue? So Nina is the first one up on the 22nd, Torres is on the 23rd and Clanmel is on the 24th. So any time from half nine onwards. Any time from half nine, and needless to mention, I presume uh, there'll be a cut-off time around half four. Half four, five o'clock. Yeah. Like if, it, if it goes over, like I, I'm just going to get, the, get, get anybody that wants to get in on those days, I, I, I'll cover them on those days. Yeah, nobody will be refused uh, a, a one-to-one with you in Tipperary no. over those three days. And haven't been ever really. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well said, Michael. Well said. Well, look, at, thanks very much for joining us this morning. That listeners was Michael Summers talking about events that are taking place in Nina Thurlis and Clonmel on the 22nd, the 23rd and the 24th of the month. And if you're 
thinking of forestry or if you're in forestry, these one-to-one sessions with Michael are things that you need to be at. They're not to be missed events for 2024. Listeners, my final guest this morning is Katrina Morrissey from the Irish Farmers Journal and Katrina is the deputy editor. Those of you who have had an opportunity to read this week's Farmers Journal will know that Katrina has an article in there. should be of great interest to most of you farmers and it's a little bit of research that has been done recently by UCD which says that high output herds could cut carbon emissions. Uh, it's a UCD study. Good morning, Katrina, and thanks for joining me. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me. And may I wish you a very happy New Year. And many happy returns to you and your listeners. Yeah, and a harad, all your colleagues in the journal as well. So, this piece of research that has been done by UCD, you know, I've read it, and I'm quite sure a lot of my our listeners have read it as well, but an awful lot probably haven't seen it at all, or it didn't. Uh, resonate with them. It seems to be extremely interesting, the results. It is very interesting um, for two reasons, I suppose. It's it's looking at a very current issue, which is obviously Ireland's um, plan to reduce carbon emissions from all sectors and and agriculture with a target of 25% reduction. Um, So what this study did was compare a high input, high output type herd, such as the one that is at UCD's Lions Research Farm, and compare that to um, what they call a typical uh, Chagask benchmark farm, which would be, uh, you know, very grass-based, so maximising the grass in the diet, minimising the concentrate feed. So it compared the two, and what it found was that um, there was a role, and that there could be a role in the future for a high input, high output type herd, because that type of herd will potentially be able to reduce cow numbers on the same land area. And if you reduce cow numbers, you obviously reduce the greenhouse gas emissions associated with those cows. In a way, it's, you know, the first thing that I said to myself when I read it was, are we going back to the future here? Because Ireland, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, would have had a high input, high output type of cow in the herd we invested a lot in you know um, u.s canadian uh, holstein type genetics and of course they had at that time they had an associated fertility problem um you know which became apparent over the years and the last 20 years have really been a focus on bringing milk production much more to ireland's grass-based system that we have now chagas has obviously been leading the way on that front grass being the cheapest of inputs that you can have for for a herd to produce milk off and ireland being so good at growing grass um but what this study looks at as i say is comparing the and sorry why i say back to the future is because this study would suggest that there may now be a role for that high input, high output herd again, which we had moved away from. So it compared, so the lion's herd was the the, um, the high input, high output herd. They were being fed 1,500 kilos of concentrate and they were producing 587 kilos of milk solids. That herd then was compared with the Chagask um, herd of feeding 500 kilos of concentrates, so one third of the concentrates, and then producing 465 kilos of milk solids. So what it found was both those farm types 
produced a similar whole farm profit. And it, this is a seven year study. Mm-hmm. Despite the higher output system having 15 percent fewer cows on the same land area, it found that the higher output system is more exposed to volatility in, in input and output prices. So in this case, in feed prices and milk price, when milk price is low and feed prices are high, the profits on that farm were less than on the Chagas benchmark farm. But when milk prices were higher, it was able to yield more profit. Um, of course, it's hugely exposed to feed price increases um, at you know putting in three times as much concentrates per cow as the Chagas type farm. Interesting, the study also looked at the impact of cow banding and the derogation cut from mm-hmm. 250 to 220 on the lion's herd. And it found that if there was no extra land available, um, the lion's type herd would force uh, the, the limit change, the nitrate derogation limit from 250 to 220, would force them to reduce 12% in cow numbers. And they would lose 400 uh, euros per hectare or nearly 40% of the profit. That's based on a milk price of 36 cents a litre. Uh, if there was extra land available, that lion's herd could actually justify paying 377 euro an acre to get more land rather than reducing cow numbers to meet the lower nitrates limit. So there's a lot of interesting information in that study. It was presented by Professor Michael Wallace, who's the Professor of Agriculture and Food Economics in UCD, and it was presented at the Positive Farmers Conference in Cork on Wednesday. What was the reaction amongst those who attended the Positive Farmers uh, Conference then? I think lots of interest in it, and mm-hmm. Aidan Brennan will be reporting on the um, the full conference next week because mm-hmm. it was on, on our print day, so we weren't able to get all of it into the paper, obviously. So um, Aidan will have more on it. He'll probably have the reaction side of it. Mm-hmm. But I, I think like most, you know, interesting and maybe food for thought for some farmers, um, to think about and, and for, for government to think about as well. Is this what they want? You know, do they want to put in place and obviously we have to meet climate targets, but is there a, a risk that potentially a move to reduce uh, cow numbers to cut greenhouse gas emissions, could it make a system that actually requires more feed inputs and moves away from our Uh, grass-based production, is that what um, the government wants? Is it an unintended consequence of the policies that we're seeing at the minute, or is it a positive thing? I think there'll be lots of debate over it. I'd I'd imagine there would be an awful lot of debate over it because there'll be some elements in government that will want it, and there's other elements in the government, uh, the current government anyway, that wouldn't want it. So uh, it will definitely, uh, I suppose, maybe concentrate the minds. But looking at it very, very quickly, you know, I've, uh, my initial reaction was that if we could meet uh, our t- targets with regard to climate change uh, by going on the high output uh, system, uh, it would uh, alleviate a lot of the concerns maybe some farmers have could do and then uh, play in devil's advocate you could also have people concerned about where is the concentrate feed going to come from because we do import Mm -hmm. a lot of concentrate feed so everything has a a reaction that maybe isn't seen straight away 
So if the feed, if there's you know three times as much feed required for the the Irish herd, mm-hmm. if we all moved to this type of system, that could mean a, a huge increase in the amount of feed being imported. What does that do for carbon footprints? What does it do for you know the sustainability picture versus cows grazing on grass right outside? And then typically, I suppose the other angle on it is that typically the high input, high output type of cow actually is is more easily managed indoors so you move away from the outdoor you know the the 90 uh, percent of feet yeah, coming I, from grass outdoors into an possibly an indoor system so when you're talking about an indoor system you're saying that those farmers who opt for that particular system would be zero grazing yeah and we'd be looking at something mm-hmm. very similar to what's in place in northern ireland yeah you know, there's a lot more indoor milk production in northern ireland than there is um in the republic so yeah that's you know it's the i suppose the the many effects that policies mm-hmm. can have yes you you may cut greenhouse gas emissions but what does that do to for example our feed imports what does it do to the the animal welfare you know yeah. um, considerations of whether you want animals outdoors grazing or indoors for longer periods of the year yeah and to to, to definitely also affect borbia's marketing for uh, irish dairy is produced on grass Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that'd be one of one of the key. And that would be if there was a wholesale switch yeah. to high input, high output, which is unlikely. But it's definitely a consideration. You know, Ireland is marketed rightly as a grass based outdoor uh, grass system, which a lot of European milk mm-hmm. wouldn't be. Um, but if there was a wholesale switch to this type of system, you know, could you feasibly market it as that? Probably not. I don't think you could. Because, as you quite rightly said, you have to take all the considerations, everything into consideration, sorry, uh, with regard to what we market abroad at the moment. uh, And that is the green uh, energy, animals outside and animal welfare is a very, very big part of that as well. So a lot of that will go out the door if we're going to be feeding in feedlots. Yeah, it's just a consideration. Obviously, mm. those you know indoor systems are very well managed as well. But it's sometimes a consumer perception that you're looking at. You know, what is the risk to the consumer's perception mm-hmm. of milk from an indoor versus an outdoor system? So that would have to be assessed, I think. Right, Rightio. Well, look, we're not going to solve all the problems. So I want to thank you ever so much for joining me this morning, Katrina. And listeners, if you want to follow up on this particular article, why not buy next week's journal? Because Aidan Brennan will be reporting on this particular subject next week. That, listeners, is Ag Report for this week. I hope you enjoy the show and that you'll join me at the same time next week. Coming up next is the news at 10 o'clock. And after that, Eamon DeWire presents Down Your Way.